Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. A little different to what we've done in the past when Dan Kelly has joined us, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing small and medium-sized businesses in this country, and Mr. Kelly has spent a lot of time with us over the last seven or eight months. And uh, so what we're going to do is have Dan actually speak to our guest, our, our, our other guest, as opposed to me asking questions, because I think Dan knows a lot more about the issues that matter than I do. And the other guest is a small business owner in uh, Winnipeg, Nicole Lowen. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for calling. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we had a nice conversation last evening, you and I, and I got a sense of what it is you're up against. Mr. Kelly, how are you? I'm good, Roy. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. It's uh, it's always a, an eventful week. It doesn't matter when we talk to you. The preceding five or six days have always been extremely eventful for small business. So I'm going to step out of the way here. We know uh, Nicola has some issues with uh, you know COVID-19 has caused her some really significant issues with her small business, as it has hundreds, well, over 100,000, over 150,000 small business owners. So, Dan, uh, fire away and talk to Nicola, and um, let's hear what, what you have to say to her. Nicola, thanks so much for uh, for doing this. What's what's going on in Winnipeg right now? Where what what's what are retailers able to do at the moment? Yeah, so we've just uh, entered our second lockdown about a week a week and a half ago. Um, so at this point, uh, basically, we are left with the opportunity to sell online. Uh, you know, do curbside pickup. We've been doing contactless delivery. Uh, so we've been yeah forced to shut down of course, to in-store traffic, and we've transitioned our entire business into an online, uh, into an online world. And uh, it's the it, second time that this has happened, obviously, this year. It certainly doesn't help second time around going into it, to, you know, not knowing what to expect. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been one of, those, one of those weeks where we've had to pivot the whole business from being an in-store traffic business to an online-only business. And tell me, when you when you switched over, Manitoba has since they started the rules. It was the first province to do an across the board retail shutdown once again since the March lockdowns. Uh, they've now changed the policy because last week big box stores in Manitoba were were still able to open. The Bay was still able to open. What's changed since? Yeah, so we actually just, as of yesterday, any business that uh, does sell essential goods but also sells non-essential goods is no longer allowed to sell those non-essential goods. So it's it's been huge for us as small business owners because it's really leveled the playing field. It's, it's put us in a position where now, um, you know, everybody is, is kind of faced with the same same challenges and and as a big box store that's seeing you know hundreds and hundreds of people a day they see more people in a day than we would typically see in six months uh it's really leveled the playing field for us so that we're not at a, at a disadvantage uh you know especially with the goods that we would potentially be competing with them on you know that's that's such an important uh, thing that you're sharing because so many business owners uh, right now of course as you likely know toronto and peel they have now been shut down to uh, retailers are going to be shut down as of Monday. Uh, I was just out shopping yesterday, spoke to a, a small lighting store who said his, you know, or her customers, sorry, would, would be able to go to, uh, to Costco or into Walmarts to buy lighting, lighting fixtures uh, after Monday, but they were going to be required to close down. 
so many small businesses have done a ton of things to try to protect customers and the public from COVID. What what have you done? Yeah, for sure. So we've I and mean, we've dropped our capacity huge. Uh, you know, just when we were able to do in store shopping, we we went to the very minimum that we could at the time. Uh, of course, we put in all proper procedures in terms of you know screens. Uh, we've separated all of our fitting rooms. Our team was fully masked. And then, of course, all of the, um, you know, the sanitization and the extra cleaning that needed to be done. Uh, and for us as a small business, you know, it was, it, it's something that's in our control to be able to ensure that it's a safe shopping environment, especially by being able to limit, you know, people coming in. We know exactly who's coming in. We could do contact tracing. Um, so it was definitely, you know, a huge a huge step for us to make those changes in the boutique, but it was something that we felt was, was safe at the time to do. Uh, and it, it allowed us to, you know, provide an experience and an environment that was also safe to others as well, too. And, you know, look, this may be an unfair question for you as you're a small business owner and have been through the ringer, but but what is, what which which type of business, a small company or a big store like Walmart or Costco, what do you think is going to be able to do a better job of, of protecting the public against Costco, if, uh, sorry, against COVID if they remain open? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, small business, for sure. I mean, it's in our control. We're, we know that we're physically wiping down all the surfaces. We're wiping down any handle. We're wiping down all machinery. Um, you know, those those types of measures are being done, not just hourly but after every single client and with being able to limit the amount of people coming in of course it's not ideal it's certainly not the way we want to do business um, but it's the way that we can do business to ensure that it's safe for everyone involved our team our clients um, and when we see you know two or three people in our store as opposed to say you know like someone's capacity at a hundred um, I mean it's 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 for me, it's a no-brainer that small businesses will be able to provide a safer experience um, and still a positive experience. Yeah, I just have to jump in here because we're a little short on time uh, on our segment. And I've been mispronouncing your name. You told me last night it's Nicola. I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, just, You're good. You know, it goes in one ear, it goes out the other. You know, It doesn't take a long time to get from one to the other. <laughs> it's all good. Don't you worry. <laughs> Nicola, tell everybody what the name of your business is and where you are in Winnipeg. Yeah, so we're called Mad About Style, and we're in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We're just off of Academy Road. And how challenging, if you look at where you were a year ago today and where you are now, how much more challenging is is it for you to keep your doors open? It's extremely challenging. I mean, I, I count ourselves fortunate and lucky that we are still able to sell goods and still be able to service our clients in some form, in some capacity. Uh, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary this year, the week after the first lockdown. And I have to say, I would have never anticipated fighting for the life of my business in year 10. Um, it's certainly been, I, obviously, a huge adjustment, as it is for everybody. It's a, it's a major challenge. Um we're a small team, we're a small business, and to see you know, our team members leave our, our store, we've had to do two, two layoffs in the last you know, eight months, and, and our team is our family, and so it's not just the aspect of how it's hindered us in terms of our sales and, and revenues, but it's how it's affected our team and the people that rely on us and that we rely on them. So it's certainly been, it's been a whirlwind year for sure. And what's your, uh, what's your online address? It's www.madaboutstyle.ca. Madaboutstyle.ca. Madaboutstyle, and it's Nicola Lowen. <laughs> you know what? I just found out how hard your job really is. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. 
your job is the one that is the real challenge <laughs> and you're representing people who are in in very difficult times and i think you're doing a terrific job professor ken coates Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation of the Johnson Triama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. I was trying to count up the uh, the um, numbers of books, the number of books that Professor Coates has written, and I uh, I stopped at thirty one. One of his amazing books, and he's a real expert on the issue of Indigenous matters, Indigenous peoples. One is uh, from Treaty Peoples to Treaty Nation: A Roadmap for All Canadians. And I think the first book I spoke with you uh, about, Ken, was What to Consider If You're Considering University. And here we are in November with COVID and virtual education and uh, really a difficult time for for young people who are trying to uh, absorb career moves and, and learn and and, and and dealing with you know social separation but what i thank you for coming on the show what i want to talk to you about is your your op-ed that you wrote amid second wave canada needs a sustainable pandemic strategy not lockdowns and uh, i found that through uh, the mcdonald laurie institute where you're a fellow you start out with many years ago at a canadian studies conference at cambridge university the estimable margaret atwood told the audience of europe and uk-based canadian specialists that their ability to answer a simple question would reveal the depth of their understanding of canada let me turn it over to you <laughs> that was a great line um, you, i think i can tell you that the academics were very nervous they're looking around going, oh my gosh what's the question so the question was how do you get 50 Canadian teenagers out of a swimming pool, and you can see the sweat, you know, erupting <laughs> on the brows of these uh, sort of bald-headed Amer- you know, British British scholars. Um, and uh, she stared at them for a while, and she said, "The answer is really simple. You know, please get out of the pool." Right. <laughs> um, and of course, so it's, a, it, it's a standard reference standard reference to Canada's you know sort of willingness to sort of go along with the rules, our our, our commitment to peace, order, and good government, and our law-abiding nature. And so here we are. We've been very uh, law-abiding, very peaceable, very agreeable to the measures that have been introduced and lowered upon us by health care, public health care, and politicians. And we've done everything that's been asked of us. And and, and in your piece, one paragraph begins with, frustrations understandably grew as time passed. May I ask you to pick that up there, please? I will, actually. I mean, you know, it's been a long haul. It's been since March. Uh, we're all getting frustrated. We're all getting really angry in times about being stuck in our homes or told we can't travel or all the rules and regulations. And I think we've actually done very, very well. Some people are pushing back higher, harder than others. Uh, but we've also missed some really important issues. And I just picked up the introductory blurb to our, to our section, section, and I completely concur with what your other guest was saying. We have really underestimated the degree to which this is destroying the fabric of small business in Canada. You know, our, our larger corporations, a lot of our franchise operations, you know, the, the great big grocery stores, the fast food restaurants, those, those folks are going to be okay. But, you know, I'm really concerned about the smaller businesses, particularly in smaller towns, who've often been holding on by their fingernails anyway. They're, these are not, you know, making a huge amount of money on a regular basis. And, and people are sitting there saying, we can't take this anymore. You know, governments come up with some short-term plans and short-term measures. But, you know, we're now talking about this going on, well, for, for weeks more, for months more, well into the spring, and goodness knows how long after that. 
we need to do something that actually makes sure our economy operates and that people can get to their stores and operate on a, on a, on a safe and secure sort of way. And if we don't, you know, we're undermining a huge section of our society. We've, we've messed up the education of high school kids for, for good reasons. I'm not blaming anybody for doing that. The university and college experience has been severely eroded uh, for our students as a consequence. We have to do something to give people the, the sense that, in fact, the wealth production is going to become a priority of this government and of governments across the country. We can, we can keep patching keep patching holes in the boat till we're blue in the face, but at some point we have to get a new boat. And I think we really need to be talking about what we do to revitalize our economy, get small business uh, safe and secure and get them growing again, um, and at the same time protect people from, uh, from illness. We have to do that as well. You're right. Uh, in this environment, governments have to move cautiously to both manage and reassure the country. Canadians are justifiably concerned about the widening economic effects of the pandemic, and that's what you just talk, talked about. Uh, you also say the country is reeling with pandemic exhaustion, yet we have to maintain our collective vigilance. A full second lockdown, however, would have catastrophic economic consequences, particularly if other competitor nations continue to liberalize their restrictions. What are you uh, What are you suggesting that the government do? What's the um, What's the pandemic strategy that they should be adopting? Well, a couple of things. You know, first off, we should be much more alert to what's going on in other parts of the world. We tend to get so inundated with American horror stories that we're not paying attention to what's happened in Japan, where they've re- rebounded very strongly. South Korea, that never entered into the big lockdowns that we've had. Vietnam that has managed to get through the pandemic with amazing uh, success. Australia, which has done really quite well through sort of strong uh, cut, cut downs, but also uh, by really quick responses. So what do we do? Um, well, we respond directly to the people who are causing the problems. We need to have rules and regulations about large meetings. We need to sort of make sure that people who ignore those rules uh, bear the consequences for that. You know, when people hold parties and you end up with 50 or 60 other people getting ill as a consequence, uh, that's, that's devastating and completely and totally unnecessary. And what happens is we tend to sort of use generic, let's apply to everybody, we use moral suasion rather than sort of the effectiveness of rules and regulations. Uh, and I think we need to find the right balance in there. We haven't found it quite yet. If you look what happens in, in South Australia and in Melbourne, Melbourne suffered a very severe outbreak of of the virus a couple of weeks ago. They shut the place down really quickly and then reopened it almost as quickly because they got it under control. They did the contract tracing. They figured out where the problem was. They addressed it. They made sure that the hospital system wasn't overwhelmed. They're doing exactly the same thing as we speak in South Australia where an outbreak occurred and they can identify where it came in and how it was caused. And they're already having just locked down very quickly or in the process of of, of coming back out again. So what happens is we're we're getting sort of the, the worst of both worlds here. So we're kind of in a lockdown. I'm in British Columbia right now, anxious to get back to Saskatchewan, but BC doesn't want us to move and Saskatchewan telling people to be cautious that we don't, if we wanted to go, we could go. Um, so we have sort of the, in the nether world of the never never land of sort of where the rules and regulations are. Uh, I think we need decisive action where decisive action is necessary. Uh, and we don't need to sort of apply it to everybody at all times, um, but we also need to impose rules and enforce those rules when they're when they're required. 
Um, and I think we're we're sort of you know playing halfway in between on all of these different uh, different scenarios. Um, and and I'm getting growing increasingly concerned about the fate of small business. Um, we have never talked enough about what's happened to the tourism industry, and the literally thousands of of bed and breakfasts and hotel operators and tourism uh, you know uh, service providers who are suffering enormous losses as a consequence of this uh, this pandemic. You know, let, let's make sure that the whole country knows we're paying attention to their plight. Yeah, we have talked a great deal, Ken, uh, with Dan Kelly, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. In fact, he's on uh, to start the next hour with a small business owner from uh, Winnipeg who is struggling now that uh, the, you know the lockdown is on in Manitoba. And they've been struggling all along. And it's been one of the really key focuses that we've had on this program. And to hear people who have put their entire lives and into their entrepreneurial efforts, who have spent every penny they have, who have employees they can't possibly uh, let go because they send me emails saying, this is like family. I have three or four people who've worked for me for 25 or 30 years. How can I let them go? So I remortgage my house so I can keep them employed. We had one gentleman on the air with us about three weeks ago who uh, built a restaurant. Over 100 people were going to be able to be seated. Uh, he had it ready to go this year, and he wasn't able to get it started because of regulations or the lockdowns. And he doesn't qualify for any of the government programs because he's a new business. And so now he's spent half a million dollars. He's keeping his staff on on, on salary, $1,000 a month, coming out of his pocket. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know what to do. This is somebody who's starting out. And then we hear the people who've been at it for 20, 30 years, and they're even they're in the same kind of situation. You know, the government offered to uh, to, to help with uh, assist, uh, assist with rents. Um, that didn't happen for for months. And, and if you were the, the the renter, you were the business owner, and you were renting, you couldn't apply to the to to uh, to the government for uh, for for help. The the landlord had to uh, had to uh, make the application. So that it just doesn't seem like there's been any really significantly uh, proper plan for small business in this country. I, I would agree. And let me use one example. Uh, the largest group of new Canadians by far are people who come in as economic migrants. Um, they have to show that they have money to come into the country. They have to sort of have a business plan to show that they can support themselves. If you drive across Western Canada, the prairies into British Columbia, the smaller towns, you'll find many, many hotels and restaurants, but particularly hotels purchased by sort of new Canadians who who've taken all their savings and their extended family savings from India, from Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, from China, whatever, and have come here to Canada to start a new life. And, you know, I've walked in, I've been in hotels in southern Saskatchewan where, you know, there are two or three rooms being rented in a hotel that would hold 120 people. Uh, this is absolutely devastating. And they're not just losing, you know, they're losing their whole reason for coming to Canada. Of course, they can't go back now because of the travel restrictions and what have you. And, and I think we just need to figure out a better way to sort of get the message across. Um, I'll use the example of tourism uh, because it means it's such an important part of our small town fabric in all parts of this country. We have seen some successes in places like Tofino on the west coast of Vancouver Island. We've seen a success in, in, in even in Niagara-on-the-Lake and places like that in southern Ontario um, where people have sort of said, okay, we can't travel internationally, let's travel domestically. And they've really ramped up some of their activities. Well, let's ramp it up even more, folks. 
Let's make it a real clear objective of everybody, including governments, to get people to take their holidays within the country, to get back into these hotels and restaurants, to make sure that all the rules and safety regulations are required, to make sure these companies are protected from, from immediate bankruptcy while the sort of market rebounds. Uh, but there's so many things we can do of that nature. One thing you're right in saying we need a sort of a more a stronger government programs. We have we always know that the governments don't understand small business very well. I'm sure your small business owners would would agree with that sort of sentiment. But the same thing is this is not something we have to wait for government to do. Um, there are ways. Uh, some of the so restaurants in Saskatoon and here in Nanaimo are actually doing quite well because their customers have shifted from coming and eating in the restaurant to taking out. And they're actually doing fairly robust businesses. So let's let's figure this out and make it our national obligation to help the small businesses flourish in this time. If we don't do that, we're going to see a huge hollowing out of our small business sector. And I think uh, and, and that would be absolutely devastating. Small business uh, provides such an important set of opportunities for, for workers. They are vibrant in our communities. They help sustain our economies. Um, and we've paid war, far too little attention to that. I mean, I must say, because I'm one of them, you know, the others, the, the people who are on the government payroll, um, we're not, we're doing rather well in this, in this financially in this, in this pandemic. My salary has stayed un, untouched, um, since March the 15th. And same for most government workers. In fact, many are working from home in a more relaxed environment, perhaps. Um, some in a more difficult and noisy environment as well. But, you know, the, the inequity is really striking. A small business owner who's struggling to keep their store open versus the government employee who's been protected from almost everything. I'm putting aside all the people in the healthcare sector, by the way. Um, you know, there's there's unfairness in the system, and we need to sort of rec- make this into a true national en- enterprise. I would like to ask you for your thoughts on how the interruption of university education and substitution of normal in-class teaching learning with virtual attendance may be affecting both professors and students and what the education prognosis is longer term because of COVID-19. And you addressed that in your, in your op-ed. I just, uh, I just saw Ken. So would you, would you speak to that, please? I'll give you the short version. I think we've got ourselves a really serious problem and we're kind of afraid to talk about it. It's not because the students haven't been trying or the faculty haven't been working or the institutions haven't done as good a job as they could. The situation is really serious. We've had the great, the grade 12 class had the worst grade 12 probably in recent Canadian history. Uh, they've gone immediately into sort of full first year programs. Uh, what we're discovering, of course, is very talented, motivated students will do okay. They're, they're highly, uh, they're highly, highly controlled. They look after themselves. Um, the average student, uh, and actually the so-called average students, about 70% of the total, are really struggling. Uh, we're likely to see lots of people dropping out. Uh, they're dropping their courses halfway through the semester. It's really hard to keep up. Faculty are frustrated because their jobs are, are completely different, completely different than they were six months ago, trying to sort of organize their students and track them down. Boy, they're working hard at this. There's no, no shortage of effort and commitment. Um, but, of course, we're going to see them dropping out, I think, and changing programs. Community colleges have lost an awful lot of their students. The loss of money because of international student recruiting is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars across the across the country. Some institutions are in very, very serious financial difficulty as a consequence. So you have a lot. And our college teachers have done the very best they possibly can. Uh, the numbers were better than they thought in September. We, we were expecting sort of sharp declines, and some institutions went up and a few went down a little bit. Very few experienced precipitous drops, except some of the community colleges in Ontario. Uh, 
But I think the problems are going to be further ahead. This is not a good first year. Uh, the students are not going to progress well into the second year. It's not clear yet whether we'll be back in regular classrooms in the fall of, of 2021. Um, and so there's so much uncertainty into the system. Um, and of course, the students are also observing the fact that the economy is tanking in some very odd and strange and unpredictable ways. And so what they thought was going to be the great, I'm going to go into the economy because I'm going to work in this area, or I'm going to do this kind of a job, um, other than in the healthcare sector, which is exploding in demand, uh, it's not at all clear what where the jobs are. We've got a lot of work to do to get this right. And in one sentence, what do we have to do nationally in one sentence? Take it seriously and start looking further down the line and stop patting ourselves on the back. I'm sorry to be so blunt about this. Other countries are doing better. Some other countries are doing much worse than us. So we better sort of take this on as a sort of a kind of a warlike challenge where we actually respond to the challenges of, of this pandemic and, and try to make country, you know, Canada successful in the future. And we're too, we're too casual by, by right. a long shot. The Food and Drug Administration in the United States has just approved Regeneron, a drug received by President Donald Trump as he battled COVID-19. And they've approved it for emergency use on COVID patients nationwide. Now, there's not a lot of it from what we understand. But what I find also really fascinating is that the FDA, not this part, they're going to decide whether any COVID vaccine is safe for public distribution, they'll certify it or not. But we know today that uh, Monsef, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, Slawi, the head of the U.S. government's effort to develop a vaccine against COVID-19, he said that uh, he expects that by the middle of December, so that's what, four weeks, three weeks, uh, that uh, there will be a vaccine starting to be distributed in the United States, available to American citizens, um, probably on a uh, on an as well decided uh, by need basis. But he's saying second week of December. Professor Peter Pitts joins us. He's the former Associate Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, President and Co-Founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Professor Pitts, thank you for coming back on the program. Did that take you by surprise, the, the, the word that by the second week of December they're expecting to start to roll out the vaccine? Well, good afternoon, Roy. I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, obviously, we have two vaccines that are now being studied by the FDA, looking at their data packages, one by Pfizer BioNTech, which is a German company, they're doing it together, and second by Moderna. And the data looks very strong. The early data is just 95% effectiveness, which is really the holy grail of vaccine rates. It's quite exciting. And what the FDA is thinking of doing is not approving these vaccines right away, but giving them what's called an emergency use authorization, which means that really, certainly before Christmas, you know, the first tranche of uh, priority citizens in the U.S., which are healthcare workers and other essential workers, will have access to this vaccine. The FDA's review of the data will, will continue, and I suspect that in early 2021 they'll receive full approval, at which point it could begin to be rolled out to the entire U.S. population. So I guess the key point here is uh, this is a data-driven decision. You know, we're all hoping the data holds up under review, and the FDA is recognizing that the priority audiences need to get it first and that they can't wait until, you know, every T is crossed and every I is dotted. They have to make a sound scientific judgment in real time, which is the whole warp speed concept. So I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that they will work. I'm, I'm completely convinced that anything the FDA does is going to be a science-based proposition because of the need in the U.S. and indeed around the world. 
Yeah, because many countries are going to follow the lead of the United States. I mean, they have their own, and we have our own process here in Canada, Health Canada, but it'll be influential, whatever the FDA does will influence other countries, I'm sure. Now, what's the process, Professor Pitts, of, of actually certifying a vaccine? They'll come to you, Pfizer will come to you and say we have 94 95% success rate. What's the actual process that the FDA undergoes before they say, yeah, go ahead, distribute it? Sure. Good question. And what's true for FDA is also true for Health Canada, you know, out in uh, in uh, uh, Turning's Pasture in, in Ottawa, which is the FDA helps design the trials by which the vaccines are tested. Then once the data packages are complete, they review those data packages and make the assertions as to whether or not the vaccine is safe and effective and that the data is uh, robust enough by different types of groups, children, for example, or older people or people with serious health care conditions that can impact uh, the labeling indications for these vaccines. But what an emergency use authorization says is that the need is great enough and the safety and efficacy profile is strong enough that even before there's a full review, uh, the vaccines can be released for certain types of audiences. That'll be, I think, true in the U.S. and I would suspect likely in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. But to if it's if it's the regular way of doing things in order to get past that emergency distribution uh, reality, what what's the usual process that the FDA undergoes before it certifies a vaccine? Well, up until up until now, the process has been identical. There's been no deviation from what should happen under any circumstances, and I, you know, whether it's a new flu vaccine or a vaccine uh, for you know other types of childhood diseases. What happens now? The divergent path is that there might be a uh, allowance that the vaccine can be used prior to full review. You mentioned the Regeneron uh, antibody right, drug right. earlier. You know, that drug has, has, hasn't been approved, but again, it's been given an emergency use authorization because it's going to keep people alive right now. And we're in a very unique pandemic situation where we can wait and wait a degree of certainty while allowing the pandemic to continue to be in control. I mean, the, the goal of a vaccine is to move from mitigation, which is where we are right now, to containment. We're, we're actually in control. That's what a vaccine gives us. And I think that, you know, with, with, with firm belief that the data packages are strong enough to move forward somewhat faster, that's what the agency is doing. It's really the difference between rushing, which is where you cut corners and make mistakes, and, that, and that's not allowable, to expedite it, where you're bringing all the resources to bear as robustly and as quickly as possible. Professor Pitts, is there anything about this process, or not necessarily the process, but the arrival of the vaccine and what we've been told about it? And it's exciting to uh, to, to hear this 94 or 95% success rate, or 90% in one other case. Is there anything about this uh, that's raising, if not red flags, then uh, turning on an amber light for you? Well, there are two things. You know, firstly, obviously, uh, is the speed with which the science progressed. And that's really because it was given the priority and given the adequate funding to make it happen faster. So I don't have any concerns about that, but I think it's something to recognize that when the ecosystem works together, we can really achieve amazing things and, and, and rapidly. The thing that no one's really talking about is that the, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna vaccines are being manufactured and developed through what's called mRNA technology, messenger RNA. This has never been used before. It's a brand-new technology. What's really exciting about it is it's safer. Uh, it's less expensive. It can be ramped up uh from a volumetric perspective, faster. So, you know, all good things. But, you know, the logistics of getting the vaccines from the manufacturing facility to where it's needed is going to be tough. And in the U.S., what we've done is enlisted the U.S. military, the, the world's best logicians, to figure out how to get a vaccine which requires significant refrigeration 
uh, around the country, around the world, right away. And I think that really hasn't gotten enough attention. So from an amber light situation, because we've really got to keep our eye on the prize, now that we've figured out the science and the manufacturing and ultimately the FDA review, to how are we going to make sure the vaccine gets to where it's needed as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, because there's no, there's no allowance for cutting corners. That, that cannot be done. It has to be done exactly right. Yeah. We have about 30 seconds. Uh, how are vaccines monitored? And if one or more proves problematic, what happens? Well, the FDA is going to look at the data. If it's problematic, they're not going to get through, period, stop. You know, I think, and I hope that both will, I think we'll probably possibly even have a third uh, coming around the pike around Christmas time, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine. The data looks good uh, there as well. But at the end of the day, we're only going to have a vaccine available, whether through an emergency use authorization or a full approval, where the data is 100% robust and reviewed and replicable as well. People have to have faith in the system, otherwise they're not going to get vaccinated. And having a vaccine nobody gets, let's face it, is not a public health victory in any country. Yeah, exactly. Some public health officials and physicians are urging a very restrictive long-term lockdown to achieve zero cases of COVID. It's called COVID zero. Uh, my guest counters with a national or province-wide large-scale lockdown until COVID-19 is eradicated by saying it would be devastating. Um, the quote from a global news story was bankruptcies that will emerge because of it is something the economy may never bounce back from, end quote. My guest is Eric Cam. He's a professor of economics, macroeconomics, and monetary economics, international monetary economics at Ryerson University in Toronto. Professor Cam, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Mr. Green. So uh, what is your view of, um, let me start with a news story, if I may. Your view of the Trudeau government's national rent assistance program, let me start with that, for low-income families, indigenous peoples, newcomers uh, to Canada, and for veterans. Ontario, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, BC have signed on with three more to be announced. Are these programs good for our national economy, ultimately? Ultimately, no, they're not good for the national economy, but that's a very long-run view. In the short run, I'm not sure the government had much of a choice, and I mean that on two levels. Number one, like anything, they have to get over what they perceive to be such an immediate hump and such an immediate, um, what, what looks like a disaster, that they're probably willing to do anything, and this is pretty close to anything, number one. And number two, it's also a political football, and we can't forget that, and the government doesn't want to come off looking like Attila the Hun, and so just letting people starve to death. So I don't blame the government for doing what they've done. It may not be what I would have done, but I'm not a public policy government person. I'm an economist. Okay, then back to uh, the, the questions I was going to ask you that are more generic, but they have to do with our economy. Is it possible to quantify how much Canada's economy has backslid since the initial lockdowns during the first wave of lockdowns and restrictions in the spring because of COVID? Do we know? No, we don't have, uh, no, it's almost impossible to figure out. Now, I'm probably the only macroeconomist who's not working slavishly right now on a paper to figure out what is the dollar cost. My friends in Canada, the U.S., Italy, France, they're all trying to figure out to the penny what this thing is costing. But at some point, when numbers get into the hundreds of billions, which they're going to creep into if this goes on long enough, you don't need a specific number. You just need to know that this is a downturn that could potentially make something like the Great Depression look like a rival or even look small if this drags on long enough. And by the way, before I get lambasted by your good listenership, just to put it out there in terms of context, 
uh, I'm a husband and a father too, and I, I don't want to sit here and say that what we have to do is let people starve and die. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that the knee-jerk government reaction to providing people income, um, I understand it. I understand it. Um, but it is not a long-term viable product for an economy. No economy is going to withstand this. Well, we spoke uh, on several occasions with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, who's been on this program uh, as recently as last weekend. And Mr. Giroux has told us you could do this once, what the government did to offset the losses and to, to supply uh, income to people who, who needed it, who lost their jobs. But you can't do it more than once. And he's very concerned about the fact that now the government is spending billions of dollars weekly without being accountable to Parliament and not providing the numbers on where the money's going. Now, if I can somehow squeeze, shoehorn that into my next question, um, how precarious is the economic well-being of Canada today? And, and I'll add to that that I saw the head of the Hotel Association of Canada had great concerns, saying she worries, quote, we could lose at least half of this industry, end quote. I, I agree 100%, Mr. Green. And so what I come back to is, like the person who commented and said we could do this once. Again, there was a knee-jerk reaction, there was a panic, and we, we wanted to get people over some perceived short-term uh, hump, hoping, praying that maybe that, you know, if we got them three, six months into the future, this would vanish. But people that want to say that we have no choice and we have to do this and that, it's just, and that the results of it are not as bad as we think they're going to be, Generally, what they do is they're talking about the fact that the government can print money and the government, unlike you or I, can borrow money from itself basically endlessly. The government has a credit card that doesn't have a credit limit. And so what they can do in the short run, medium run and long run is they can print money and they can borrow money. And yes, in theory, they could keep this afloat for as long as they want. The problem is, is that there are many macroeconomic variables, debt, is just one of them. So people say, let them double the debt, let them triple the debt, quadruple the debt, so what? Well, okay, number one, so what is, that may or may not have to be paid back one day, but that's for the left and the right wing to fight about. My problem is, what about the other macroeconomic variables that are just as important? What about income distribution, which is only going to be made worse in this? Before we went into this, everybody was crying about the divergence in income distribution between rich and poor, this is going to make that look like a garden party. What about lowering real wages? What about lowering employment, right, for jobs that are never going to come worse. back? Yeah. Worse, exactly. What about interest rates? Right now, they're historically low. Again, you and I can go and borrow money at basically free. And you know what? That's wonderful. And the government can say, so please, if you have any disposable income left, spend it. Well, again, that's fine for the short term. Uh, but what if rates go up? What if they go up 1%? And it's been shown that many people are going to lose their houses, their leases on their cars just by that 1%. And I can go on to tell you lots of other stories, but the reality is the debt and deficit story is murky. And it depends on how you feel about your government being in debt. But there are so many other macro variables that are going to get hit and negatively affected to points where I'm not sure they'll ever come back. Yeah. And we can add to that, and I quote this often, is that uh, in October, I think it was October of last year, before COVID, 
Ipsos polling showed that 49% of Canadians are within $200 or were at that time within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. So that, that tells us how precarious the financial reality is on an individual basis in the, in this country, even before COVID. Well, of course. And, and so, yeah, that's right. So, you know, the macro economy wasn't exactly chugging along at warp speed before we hit this. And so this has exacerbated it. And again, I don't want to be too repetitive, but let's just take an, another couple of issues, right? There's no question that when COVID is over, if COVID is over, nobody has a crystal ball, right? We, we know that real wages are going to fall. We know the demand for labor is going to come down because there's a simple theory called hysteresis, which let me put this simply. We have learned that we can do more or at least as much with less labor. So you know when they start bringing the labor force back, it's going to come back to a lower level, and that means that people are going to earn less real wages. And then, again, because I'm a macro theorist, I love talking about the interest rate. I see people cheering and jumping up and down right now, Mr. Green, that the, they can borrow money for almost free. Well, again, if you're a borrower, that's wonderful. What if you'd like to retire sometime this century and you're earning nothing on your savings? What do you tell those people? We have national business associations writing letters to the federal government and the prime minister spelling out the need for tailor-made COVID-19 programs to support hard-hit sectors. This is in November. November. Should it be necessary for business organizations to be sending letters to Ottawa outlining the needs and, and saying this is where you should focus in November? This thing's been going on since the beginning of the year. Yeah, probably not. I mean, you know, businesses are not unlike people, are not unlike governments, and everybody has their preferences and their priorities, and everybody wants to say where they think that money would be best or most efficiently spent. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of times people only give you half of the story. And again, not to infuriate any of your listeners, but it's like when people, you know, people walk around with their placards and they say, we need rent control. Uh, but they don't tell you that it's going to produce less affordable housing. Or they walk around and say, we need higher minimum wages, and they forget to mention it's going to be less people hired. I mean, these are the people that have claimed bankruptcies are going up and up and up through the roof, when in fact we just found out last week through a few studies that bankruptcies in Canada are down about 18% from a year ago. And does that mean that some businesses aren't in trouble? No. It just means that some businesses are not in trouble. And it means that we're paying them upwards of $60,000 to not go broke, when in fact they may have gone bankrupt anyway. And now someone's going to call me all sorts of names and say I'm in a privileged position. But the numbers don't lie. And so what you have in, in, in your question, and it's a good one, is everybody has a feeling where they would like to see the money spent and how they would like to best do things. And of course, everyone is, everyone's got a big heart. I believe that. Everybody wants to see this thing gone and life get back to normal. I'll tell you what I'm worried about, Mr. Green, is what is life going to look like? Is it going to be normal when we come out of this pandemic if there are no jobs and there, there are people that are working and they are earning minimal wages compared to what they were before COVID? And so my, my point is, is if you're just going to say, let's just shut down the economy, to, to get rid of this, I'm saying the cost of that is just going to be far too high. So let me ask you about that. If there was a coming major national lockdown, and uh, I just hear a lot of, I hear a lot of talk coming from 32 compass points that seem to be heading toward the, the center of the, uh, of the wagon wheel, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if 
we hit and we encounter a national lockdown. I don't think many people would be. But you've said to Global News that you worry about Canada's economy ever fully recovering, if I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. you correctly. Speak to that, please. Uh, it's just going to take... It, it, there's no one... Nobody is going to argue, if, if unless, again, unless they have a, a really good crystal ball, in which case they should be in Las Vegas betting on this, that the economy is ever going to bounce back to pre-COVID levels. These are unprecedented times that we're living in. And I don't know how people are, are just assuming right now that if we shut down the economy, pay everybody serve or whatever the heck they call serve now, um, that when this is over, someone's going to pull a lever on the economic machine and the lever's going to push everything back to pre-COVID levels. It, it's just not going to happen. I mean, one of the best examples of this is mental health. You often hear people talking about the mental health of people getting through the pandemic, and I totally understand. I'm totally sympathetic. If you suffer from any type of anxieties, as I do, these are times that can make you very nervous. But again, much like the economic arguments, the mental health arguments, I think, are being forgotten about what are things going to look like coming out of this? What about what is the unemployment? What is the lower real wages or the vanishing of full-time jobs and the proliferation of part-time jobs going to do to stress, potentially malnutrition, isolation? And what if those, what if those results are worse, are worse than they could ever have been uh, if you just let the economy continue and at least let people earn as much as they can earn? And this is going to get me in trouble with some of my colleagues, but I hear professors and doctors many of which I'm friends, many of which I'm related to, coming out and saying, we have to shut down the economy. With all due respect to all of them, Mr. Green, you can shut down the economy, and tenured professors and doctors are not going to feel the pinch. So I, I hate to say it, I respect them all, but you've got to take what they're saying with a grain of salt. It's really easy to sit in your corner office at a hospital or a campus and say we have to shut down the economy. It's not viable. It's interesting you say that because uh, I tweeted something similar to that, which has been getting quite a bit of reaction. Earlier this morning, uh, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning and I started checking Twitter and uh, Dan Kelly of the CFIB had uh, tweeted that visited a small lighting store in North Toronto today. I was the only customer and there were two staff. She told me she's forced to close as of Monday and expects her customers will be in giant lineups at Home Depot. She was in tears and asked me how this makes sense. So I tweeted out 160,000 plus small businesses desperately trying to survive nationally is cruel beyond the acceptable. People whose salaries, pensions remain stable, secure, deciding the fate of community builders. Is this what we're all in this together? means then that's what i tweeted and it's gotten a lot of response and by the way you should have called me at 3 30 because i find it hard to sleep right now too i mean <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's, these, it's funny isn't it it I'm is with you. i think about these issues yeah. all the time and i really yeah. try to balance i mean all i hear from my friends who hear me do spots like this is that i'm not giving the proper um the, the proper care and the proper thought to um people's health and what do they want you to say health. we have about a minute left what do they want you to say they want me to say to shut down the economy. Let's wait till everybody has recovered. There are no cases of COVID. The hospitals are empty. And then we can get back to building up the economy. And I'm trying to explain to them that maybe economic health to them on the surface may not be as important as public health. But if you want to see what economic health looks like, you shut down the economy for a few months and then you hope to pull this magic lever and bring it back. And you're going to see you're going to see economic health dive into to, to mental health and public health. And then no, we're I... just going to have a two sided disaster. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.